everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, where we are learning to invest like the best investors in the world. And by that, we mean Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Manesh Prabhai, Guy Spear, phenomenal investors who are typically follow the idea of Ben Graham's value investing with, you know, different variations of that, that I certainly do. And Danielle's learning. And my daughter, Danielle, is an attorney and um, is learning to invest. And I am a, I guess I'm an investment <laughs> educator. Are and, you, Dad? Yeah, I'm a, I've written a couple of books. I run, I run some money. Basically, you're some guy who like records stuff on his computer and puts it out on iTunes. And, and sticks it out there. Yeah, that's about it. No. <laughs> Dad has written two best-selling books about investing. He invests on his own. He has invested on his own in his with his own money on his own. He's invested with other people's money. So basically, like you're an investor, full stop. There you go. And pretty much everything I do is based on this really studying Warren Buffett and people like Warren Buffett really hard. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger particularly. And this podcast is sort of oriented around um, these concepts of investing. Charlie Munger's idea that you have to understand the business that needs a big moat. Um, you should have management with integrity and you should buy it at a margin of safety are, are really pretty much fundamentals of Ben Graham investing that goes all the way back to the 1930s and which we call rule one investing. So we're part of this big rule one family. And um, We've been working on all kinds of valuation ideas and ways of thinking about money and yeah, you all get so down to things. it. Yeah, about the easiest way to get at really finding good investments is to just copy some of the best investors in the world. And oh. eh, that used to be hard I noticed, to do. I noticed your word copy. <laughs> <laughs> so of two episodes ago, we discussed in great detail, the 13F filings uh, that large investors must file with the SEC every quarter. And they have to essentially just say which companies they've purchased. They do not include any companies that they've sold short, which dad, tell us what that means exactly. Well, that means that they um, don't have to include what might be half of their portfolio um, which would be companies that they have borrowed stock on, sold the stock, and then now owe the broker the stock back. And the idea is that, let's say you buy uh, or you borrow the stock in Apple Computer and sell it at $175 right around now, um, and then you expect that the stock price will go down a lot, and then you can buy it back at that low price, so you buy the shares, so it's say, a bet that the, that the stock is going down, right? right? Right. So let's say the stock goes down to $100. You buy the stock and re, and then you give the stock back to the broker and the broker gives you your $175 a share. And of course, you make the difference between the low price that you paid and the high price that you sold it at when you borrowed the shares. And the problem with that is that a lot of hedge fund managers um, do what's known as market neutral investing, which means that they don't really care what direction the market goes because everything that they own is in pairs. One company, oh, really? Yeah. 
one company they think that's going to go up and uh, that's a really well I should say one company that they think is a really good uh, company in that industry and another company that they're pairing it with that they think is a really bad company in that industry. So let's just say and I'm not picking on these companies in particular, but let's just say you really, really like um, McDonald's and you really, really think um, something like Sonic is a is a bad company, badly managed company. So you think McDonald's is really good. Sonic's really bad. And by the way, I'm please do not take this as advice. I don't have an opinion on either one of these, but they're both in the, they're both making burgers. Right. So what a a. a uh, market neutral hedge fund would do is buy McDonald's, which they think is the better company and sell, borrow the stock and sell uh, short on Sonic. And now if the hmm. market itself goes up, the theory is that McDonald's being a better company will rise faster than the worst company will. Right. So Sonic will go up a little. McDonald's will go up a lot. And if the market goes down, so they would lose a little bit on that short holding, right? Or that short bet. Is that how you say it? Yeah, short, short like short position. Says the short or short position, right? Okay, so they would lose a little bit on that because it also went up, but they think it'll go up in a smaller percentage than mm -hmm. the one they're actually betting will long on. The one they're actually betting will go up. Right, and so they let's say that McDonald's goes up twenty uh, percent and Sonic goes up 5%, mm -hmm. what they'll do is take a loss of that 5% by then buying the shares at a higher price than they paid for them and then returning the shares and take the 5% loss. And meanwhile, McDonald's has gone up 20%. They'll sell those shares and they'll end up with this differential between the money they lost and the money they made. And it's larger because the market went up and their good company went up more. Mm. Now, if the market goes down, the opposite happens. Sonic's a let's say in this example, Sonic's a bad company and it goes down like a brick, whereas McDonald's only goes down a little bit, then the same thing would apply. They would be able to make all of the profit on the short side of that investment. The loss would be on the long side, but it's smaller than the than the loss on the short side. And so this paired investing strategy is very hedge fundy. That's that is so interesting. We've never discussed that. We're supposed to talk today about how to follow the 13F filings over time, but this is really interesting. Market neutral investing. Yeah, it's it's quite it's quite good. Now, of course, you you have to be very good at picking a company that's going to go up more than another company or going to go down less than another company. Right, because isn't the problem with short positions that they're really dangerous? Like you can lose way more money than you bet. Sure. I mean, here's an example of how that Sonic McDonald's thing could go bad, right? Let's say the market starts to go down and you think, oh, good. Okay, so Sonic's going to go down a lot and McDonald's is only going to go down a little and then I'm going to make yeah. money. But instead, Burger King comes over and buys Sonic. <laughs> and Sonic goes up 50% when McDonald's goes down 5% and you get crushed in your positioning. So yeah. this is not something that, that amateur investors should be doing or, or, or really anybody that isn't really super smart and willing to work extremely hard to find um, these differentials in value. And here's the problem for me is that I don't do this. And, and the problem, the reason I don't do it is because it's hard enough to figure out the value of a few companies in the market. 
being able to regularly figure out the value of pairs of companies in an industry, get mm. them both right, you know, is that's hard. I mean, there are people who do it and they do it really well, but they are really smart. And, and find uh, the right pairing, like, you know, okay, to you, just to, again, we're, we're not picking on McDonald's and Sonic, but since you brought them up. So let's say there's some particular attribute of the fast food burger industry that would affect both of them, but oppositely. Like, <laughs> you would have to know what that is in order to choose that pairing instead of McDonald's and Burger King or to go out of the realm and go McDonald's Taco Bell or something like that. Taco Bell is probably owned by the same company as Burger King. I have no idea. Oh, no, it's it's KFC and Taco Bell that are always paired up. You go to the drive-thru and it's like, do you want fried chicken or a burrito? It's super weird. (laughs) Well, the idea is that this this pairing gives you uh, the ability to make money no matter what direction the market goes. And this, of course, is Nirvana. So because nobody knows what direction the market's going to go. And and so here we are, for example, right now with the market. And this is, uh, you know, at the end of 2017, early 2018, the markets are by all historical markers, very, very expensive um, unless you consider the fact that interest rates are historically very, very low and are being kept down artificially by federal governments around the world. And so the end result is that there's no other place to put your money where you can make anything. You can't put your money in bonds because they pay nothing. So people are being driven into dividend investing and buying stocks and praying that they go up. And um, you can see how crazy people are getting about so-called investing when you watch Bitcoin, which we've spoken about a little bit, watch Bitcoin you know, go up 40% in 40 hours. I mean, it's just incredible and bitcoin is just pure speculation right that's just like it's crazy yeah i mean and yet people are making i have these friends of mine i mean think about it if a couple of years ago you bought ten thousand dollars worth of bitcoin at like let's say a hundred dollars you would have um what is that a thousand no ten a hundred bitcoins the the, the thing is though it doesn't even matter because yes you could have maybe made a decently investing style investment, <laughs> meaning you had a reasonable, uh, reasonably informed outlook on this investment to the point where you were confident that it was going to go up. Okay, let's say you had that in Bitcoin. I can, I can which, see that a few years ago. Which would be impossible. No, but a few years ago, I can see that. It's like a brand new, exciting technology. You can see all of its possibilities. There's no way this thing's not going to go up. Fine. But the question is... No, not fine. But okay, we'll come back to that. Yeah, fine. But the question is, how much does it go up? That's the part where we are now in a bubble of, of Bitcoin. And to even like run the calculations of, oh, if I had only put so much in two weeks ago, I could have gotten onto this run up thing. Like it just, to me, it's just kind of silly because no matter, like no matter what the outcome was, there was no reasonable prediction that this was going to happen. So anybody who did do that was completely gambling and they got really lucky. And this is where I would disagree with you in your initial statement that at the early stages of Bitcoin, it was likely to go up. No, it wasn't any more likely to go up then than it is now. 
simply because it's a new technology, it's likely to go up. There have been hundreds of other copycat sort of coin offerings that are completely bankrupt and gone. And yes. there was no but reason to think I think you're saying that, that one, because you don't know anything about Bitcoin. And I would bet that people who knew something about Bitcoin two years ago could see why this one had a good chance of surviving and the other ones didn't. Okay, I guess so. Um, I'm not saying it's definite. I'm just saying I can see how... Let's say that they thought it would survive. There was a good argument. Let's say they thought it would survive. Okay, fine. But then how do you figure out what it's worth? And there, that's the catch. Right. right? So right. if Bitcoin's at $100 per coin, per Bitcoin, how, is that a good deal or a bad deal? Well, only yeah. on hindsight do you have any idea now that it's at $16,000 a coin, you know, you have this instant bias, which is irrational, which basically says, oh, yeah, I, I was pretty obvious on hindsight that this was going to go up. When right. it's not obvious at all. And I've got friends of mine who absolutely bet the bank on, on, the, on Bitcoin kinds of stuff. And man, they made millions and millions of dollars. But, you know, these guys are, they're, they're more speculative type type uh, you know they like the gambling part of it i mean it's a fun fun thing they trade it and they move in and out of it and they've gotten very good at trading it which is a whole different world but to say today oh well you know sixteen thousand, it's going to go to one hundred sixty thousand per bitcoin or it's going to go to a thousand i mean who knows yeah right well so to get back to market neutral investing when yeah. you come to something like that, I mean, it's it's pure speculation. And I think what you're saying about this pairing is that you have to probably in some ways also speculate. Well, just, just consider like. Bitcoin, for example. Let's say you decided Bitcoin was really highly overpriced right now at 16,000 and you thought Ethereum was the way to go. And what you do is you go long Ethereum and you do short on Bitcoin. Now, the catch is the institutional investors are only just starting to get involved in Bitcoin right now. And as a result, it's very hard to go short Bitcoin, right? Who's going to lend you the Bitcoin for you to sell and then be willing to take that position um, as a broker, more or less, um, and wait for you to repay the Bitcoin, right? Somebody's mm -hmm. got to do all that. So institutional investors are really looking hard at Bitcoin because they love to participate in the gambling. It's wonderful. If there's a lot of volatility, the invest. So, by the way, anybody who's looking at Bitcoin or any kind of other ICO, you know, initial coin offerings, and you're hearing that the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or the options market or the, the big investment banks are starting to create markets around this, it it in a way legitimatizes the 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 market. But that's what it, it's all it's doing. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's an investment that these guys are are now making a market. They'll make a market in anything. They'll make a market in weather, right? They, they yeah. don't care. Yeah. They're just That's taking real. a piece in the middle. There are markets for weather. Yeah, there are markets for weather and power. And I mean, uh, almost anything that people want to bet on, these guys will make a market. It doesn't make it an investment. I mean, remember, dog racing has a market. Horse racing has a market, right? So you can, you can there's a market for football games. It doesn't mean it's an investment just because mm -hmm. there's a market. So in, in the case of sort of hedging uh, on one side or the other of investments, the fact that you can do it doesn't mean you're actually investing. You could be gambling like crazy if you don't know what you're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does the term hedge fund then come from this concept? It does. Of 
he- literally hedging your bet by buying one side long and one side short? Yeah, it does. Oh, it I never that. knew that. And um, and Warren Buffett argues actually that Ben Graham is the first hedge fund manager, and um, and and Ben Graham didn't short stocks. Hmm. So there's another version of what hedge means, right? Um, so Buffett's view is that that you could be in a position of hedging if you know that there's a vast difference between the value of the business and the price you're paying. You're hedged by that knowledge. You're hedged against, against uh, a, the market in, in a way. Like right. you've got reality and you're hedged against the market. <laughs> yeah, you've got, you've got a real picture of value and the market has an irrational picture of price. And you That's hedge interesting. That. So that, that difference is what, one of the reasons that we really like to look at what really good investors are buying. And so over on our website, um, we've got this in the toolbox. On your, Rule one your website, which is what? Rule1investing.com has a toolbox and you can get in there and play around in it. Um, there's a section that you look under the search tab and you go down and say search gurus and click on that. And it'll list not every single investor out there that's reporting on these 13F filings, but just, a, I think I've got 46 of them in there. And these are carefully selected. So this is my curated, I love this word, the curated guru list. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got the gurus in the museum here. You're and so Instagram worthy, Dad. That, that's, that's pretty cool, <laughs> huh? The curated list. I should actually put that on the search thing. It's the curated guru list. So these are the gurus that I think are representative of rule one style investing. And, and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are obviously on the list. Um, but there's also guys like Alan Meacham, who is a pretty young guy out in Salt Lake City. Nobody knows much about him. Uh, he runs a company called Arlington Value Capital. And he's done phenomenal. He started just maybe a decade ago or something with a little bit of capital, and now he has almost a billion dollars under management. And is one of the few fund managers that actually beat the market. Not only beat, excuse me, a lot of us beat the market, but a fund manager who, who had a positive return when the market was dropping like a brick. And the reason I'm mentioning Allen is because the, the stock market went down almost 50% back in 2009, 2008 and 2009. And Alan had a positive return and he wasn't short. During that crash yeah. in 2008? Yeah. He had a positive return and he wasn't short the market. Did he foresee this real estate crisis? No, he didn't foresee <laughs> the real estate crisis. What he was doing is just being very careful about putting money into companies that had a big margin of safety. So he was looking at companies which were out of favor through a lot of that time, right? So. Hmm. While while that was happening, he was able to move money to cash. He got heavily into Bank of America stock about the same time Warren Buffett did, um, when the banks were really really cheap, and um, and he did really well. That was that was a that was a tough time to make money. I was sitting in cash and and did well afterwards. But um, to be able to really have a positive return when the market's dropping like a brick, you got to be a good investor. So that's one well, of the things that we really like about looking at these guys and watching what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, to be able to do that without foreseeing the huge problem that was happening with mortgages at the time, that's what 
is striking me as being rather extraordinary because there were a number, a small number, but there were a number of other investors who saw this thing coming and were investing accordingly. But if he wasn't one of them and yet he still did well, that's wild. Yeah, he was not one of them. He did well. What, what was his name? Alan Meacham? Yeah, M-E-C-H-A-M. Um, okay. He did well, I mean, basically in the same reason that, that you know, other investors like me did well, and that is that you look at the value of the market versus the price of things, and when you start to see that it's really screwed up, you don't want to be there, right? You don't want to be owning companies yeah. when the market values are screwed up. Now, Warren Buffett didn't sell a lot of stuff right before the crash because for him, like he can't just get out of companies very easily. So you have to know what each one of these, what are the positions of each one of these really good investors in order to understand why they're doing what they're doing. So where Alan Meacham might be selling companies, maybe he's selling Coca-Cola in, in 2008. I'm not mm. saying he was, we just say, Warren Buffett can't sell Coca-Cola in 2008, even if he wants to get out of it. Why is that? Because he owns such a huge piece of it that if he started selling, number one, everyone would know he's doing it in the whole world and freak out because if Buffett's getting out of a position that he's been in for 20 or 30 years, that's a very big red flag. That yeah. something's going on there that you better, better pay attention to. And since most fund managers don't have the bandwidth to pay attention to almost any of their companies at this level, right, the, the, the mutual fund, the institutional funds, the, oh, in particular, the index funds, Coke is in the indexes, right? So if you see this thing starting to go down, these guys are selling it off because they have to sell in order to stay with the index, which it further accelerates the the loss. So yeah. so it's what I've got on on my list is forty six really good investors, and and says uh, you know we charge for our toolbox. You can get in there for a month, but for free. But if you want to get a, a list that's curated by somebody else, Data Roma has the data on gurus for about 80 of them and yeah. um, many of them are similar names so they're they're there's free. a there's a number of free websites as well um online you can just uh search for them you know search for a 13f filing search for uh berkshire hathaway 13f filings like anything like that it'll bring them up but i'm intrigued by your curated list i have to say yep yep so because because on these other sites, you get just this huge, you get this huge list of people. And I mean, that's where the question comes in. Like, okay, here are, I don't even know how many there are in total, hundreds, maybe thousands. And you can't look at all of them. So for no, the there's, beginner, there's thousands. so what I did was go to... Berkshire Hathaway, <laughs> go to the feet of the master. So, um, well, there's a catch with there... Berkshire, though. Oh, tell me. Okay, so Warren obviously is is uh, well up there in years, and he has planning for succession, right? Um, and so he's hired two 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 guys who both had very good track records as investors, who follow a lot of the same basic strategy as Buffett does. And he really liked these guys, and um, he brought them on board and gave them each, I think, $10 billion to work with on a portfolio that's about $160 billion. And so they're buying and selling stocks within the Berkshire flagship 
So when you look at Buffett, what you're seeing is not just Buffett, you're also seeing them. Right. I mean, there is no Buffett. You can't actually look up Warren Buffett, 13 of filings. And I know that because I tried. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and you get Berkshire Hathaway. So here, here's the guy who's the icon for investing in, in, in very focused investing. And when you look at his portfolio, you see that, oh, OK, well, he's got 14 percent invested in Kraft and 14 percent in Wells Fargo, 13 percent in Apple. 10% in Coca-Cola and so on. But then you start to notice that, oh my gosh, he's got all of these other positions. Goldman Sachs, he's got General Motors, DeVita, uh, VeriSign, Liberty Media, Visa, Monsanto. And these are for a half percent, a quarter mm. percent, Costco, Synchrony. All this stuff doesn't look like a rule one investor. It looks like somebody that's running a, a mutual fund that's spreading it all over everything. There's a couple of things going on here. The number one is the two, it's Todd Wexler and Ted, I forget, maybe it's Ted, never mind. It's Todd and Ted. And they, <laughs> and Todd they, and Ted. They're, they're spending, you know, $20, million, $20 billion of the $160 billion. And then you have combined positions, which also look smaller than they actually are. For example, Buffett has Southwest Airlines at 1.4%. But what he's actually done is made an airline investment and he owns Southwest, Delta, United and American, all of them at about the same percentage. And when you total them up, they're his sixth largest position. So hmm. it, it, there's my point is that, you know, we'll dive into this more as we go. OK, yeah, because what but, I want to talk about more is is exactly what you're saying now. How do you take this information and then use it ourselves? And you're and you're saying it right now. You have to apply some filters of just basic intelligence, like look at the industries, look at the categories, and look at the percentages. Well, then let's do that next week. Let's dive into several of these fund managers and yeah. start to see what we can learn by looking at their portfolio and understanding something about how they invest. Shall we do that? That sounds great. Yeah, okay. that sounds great. And we just want to thank everybody for bearing with us last week on our uh, From the Vault episode, which we hope you enjoyed. But as I said then, we do have an exciting announcement coming up that we're going to blast out to everybody at the beginning of the year. And we hope you'll be there uh, to enjoy it and support us. And we're, we're just really excited about it. So I'm going to keep teasing it. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but it's coming. And I'll bet you we and have some free gifts involved. What do you bet? Oh, I think there might be. Oh, yeah. Dad and I are working hard on getting things ready. Very so um, for next week, we'll be back with more on um, these guru filings and how to use them. Until then, time to go play. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code stockpile, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, stockpile, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor 
Have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary? This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.